Hi, and welcome to Episode 9 of Sacred Science, Gleaning Wisdom from Science and Religion. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Rabbi Jeff Middleman, Founding Director of Sinai and Synapses, which bridges the worlds of religion and science. Why do people believe in conspiracy theories? How do we distinguish actual ones from made-up ones? What's the difference between skepticism and pseudo-skepticism when it comes to issues like climate change and evolution? Michael Shermer has been working on questions of belief, skepticism, and knowledge for his career, and he's the author of multiple books, including Why People Believe Weird Things, The Moral Arc, and Conspiracy, so there was no one better to talk to than him about these questions. This conversation was recorded on February 16th, 2021. One of the things that we are really struggling with in America, and I know this is something that you've been thinking about and talking about, is these questions of conspiracy theories, because there are all sorts of conspiracies that are happening all around. And there are some actual real conspiracies, right? We can look back on history and there were things that were real. And then this was one of QAnon of, you know, there are crazy, right. There are conspiracies that are, that people buy into, but there's no basis for them. So how do we distinguish different kinds of conspiracy theories here? Yeah. The QAnon is an interesting one because it is so far out there that no one can possibly believe it except maybe a handful of uh, really deranged people. I mean, there's no way Ted Cruz could believe this, that there's a satanic cult of pedophiles being run by Hillary Clinton and uh, Hollywood celebrities like, uh, well, not Tom Cruise. No, he's Scientology. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, uh, you know, know, and that that Trump is combating them. I mean, there's no way – elected officials that are obviously reasonably smart can believe this. So when people say they believe it, what are they really signaling? What are they kind of socially signaling their commitment to the tribe, their, the boss, the, the party, the, the ideology without really probably uh, conceding that the actual conspiracy theory is true. Um, setting aside the other part, which is an interesting question I'll get to in a minute. Um, but this, this is probably true for most things. You know, you ask people what their position is on NAFTA or, uh, you know, like they just take NAFTA, you know, well, I'm a forward or I'm against it. You know, people speak out about this, they vote on it. But if you actually ask people, what is NAFTA? They, they don't know. They're, they're clueless. They, they have no idea what's in this trade agreement or even, even who's in it. It's just like, well, but our party's against it, so I'm against it. You know, our climate science, you know, it's a technical science. I, I'm not a, I'm a social scientist, not a climate scientist. And people send me these articles. I don't really understand them. They're technical. You know, these model, mathematical computer models are pretty, pretty technical. So when people say they accept climate science, they accept anthropogenic global warming, or they reject it, really what they're saying is, um, I'm committed to science and the scientific method, so I trust it, or I don't trust it because I don't trust authorities, you know, because my party doesn't trust, you know, big government or universities, or my party doesn't trust this or that. So really, again, it's kind of that social political signaling about their position on it. Most people don't know much about it. Um, you know, same thing with like uh, evolution and creationism, an older debate I've, I've been involved in. You know, if you ask people that doubt the theory of evolution, well, what is it? 
that you doubt. Explain it in in your own words what the theory says. It, they're they're clueless. They don't really understand it. Most people don't. Even college students who take courses in science, they don't they they have a hard time explaining how natural selection works. You know, this population genetics argument and so on. They, they have more of a Lamarckian approach to how evolution works. So really what they're saying is, you know, I believe because my religion, my party, the boss, whoever, you know, believes. And so I'm, I'm committing to that. And now you asked about true conspiracies. Yes, this is the problem with conspiracies. I mean, we deal with, you know, let's say ESP or perpetual motion machines or something like that. They can't be true. It's not possible. This would violate all the laws of nature. So so going into it, I, I don't have to even bother with that. But with conspiracies, um, theories, some of them are true. Uh, and enough of them are true that, you know, that it, there's there's kind of a logic a game theory logic to just assuming most of them are true just in case so that you err on the side of safety or precaution. So uh, my friend Jared Diamond calls this constructive paranoia, which he he uh, coined when he was out camping with his um, uh, native um, Papua New Guineans uh, out in the middle of nowhere, the jungles of Papua New Guinea. And he wanted to pinch his tent underneath this dead tree. And they said, well, it might fall and kill us in the middle of the night. He said, well, come on, that's paranoid. I mean, what are the chances that that tree right there is going to fall? Well, if you, as they explained to him, if you sleep under a tree every single night of the year and one out of 1,000 trees fall, you'll be dead in three years. Right. Oh, okay. So it pays to be, uh, you know, a little uh, uh, cautious, paranoid even. And, and, and conspiracy theories that turn out to be be true or more than one in a thousand. I mean, just think, just think of Watergate was a conspiracy. Iran-Contra was a conspiracy. All the shenanigans that the uh, WikiLeaks exposed of the American surveillance program, that's a you know conspiracy. Congress didn't vote on most of that those things, so we didn't have representation there. And of course, Lincoln was assassinated by a conspiracy. You know, a good percentage of political regime change in the last 500 years around the world you know, it, it depends how you count it, but it's, you know, it's not trivial. It's like 20 to 30% of all monarchs that have changed hands did so violently. Violent overthrow, a coup d'etat is real. These really think these things really happen. So the idea that that could happen here is not impossible. Um, you know, you know, you, you get, again, you get some uh, extremist conspiracists like Alex Jones, you know, uh, that um, Sandy Hook was a false flag operation to take away our guns or, 9-11 was an inside job as a false flag operation to uh, for Bush to invade Iraq and Afghanistan. Okay, that sounds pretty crazy, especially the Sandy Hook one. I mean, that's not just crazy, that's evil. But on the other hand, there are false flag operations, you know, and my favorite example of this that didn't happen, but it could have, was during the Kennedy administration, he inherited from Eisenhower many plans to um, invade Cuba and to counter Castro, who had just come to power, to assassinate Castro. Uh, they had plans to poison his cigars, to uh, put toxic poisons on the inside of his wetsuit because he was a scuba diver, even plant a bomb underneath a shell at the bottom of the ocean where he'd lift it up and blow up. Um, then there was in the late 90s, 1997, and the church committee released a uh, public release of information about the Kennedy conspiracy, the Kennedy assassination, that it turned out there was this Operation Northwoods, um, which was a plan brought to Kennedy by his own 
Joint Chiefs of Staff of the military uh, as a preclude to uh, uh, precursor to uh, invading Cuba to actually uh, make it out like the Cubans or the Russians uh, attacked one of our jets flying over Miami or to even shoot down a plane of American students going to like Cancun from Miami, shoot them down and make it look like it was a Russian MiG from Cuba, and then we'll invade them. Now, to his credit, Kennedy said, you guys are out of your mind. We're not going to shoot down a plane of Americans. This is crazy. But that even somebody high up in his administration had actually put this on paper and said, here, here's some things we could do. It's like that. Okay. So this kind of stuff happens. And so people are reasonable to think, or you just think the Volkswagen conspiracy to cheat the uh, mission standards by the EU. You know, that's a, a corporate conspiracy. These things happen all the time. So people are, you know, understandably uh, a little paranoid about that. And I think there's, you know, there, there's actually a, a few different things that I know that you've talked about and written about too. And, you know, one of them is that, is that belief, are, you know, one of my teachers once said that our our brains did not evolve to help us find truth. Our brains evolved to be able to keep us alive. And so there's, you know, it, it's hard to be able to say, oh, this is the, what the actual truth is. And, and there could be value from, from an evolutionary perspective of being able to, to, to accept things that may not be true because there's such a potential big downside. If you're, if you're wrong, like with, with the yeah. sleeping under the trees um, that, that, you know, there's, there's a, a, a difference of, skepticism and what we might call pseudo skepticism, right? Of like, well, well, I'm just asking how could this possibly, maybe this is something here. And it's very hard to be able to distinguish those kinds of things. Yeah. Although that particular phrase is often used by people that already have made up their mind and they're doing the, you know, I'm just asking questions here. I don't know. You know, the nine 11 truthers always do that because mm -hmm. I push them. All right. Who do you think did it? If you, you know, if, if you don't think the, you know, the, the um, Islamic terrorists did it, who did it? Well, you know, the, the Bush administration, who, who name names? Oh, I don't know. I'm just asking questions. Yeah. Right. Uh, you know, you hear that a lot. So, uh, but again, I think, you know, most people don't know that much about any of these topics until you look into them and that takes a bit of work. So you, you just kind of signal on social media, Twitter, Facebook, whatever, um, you know, because everybody seems to have seemingly has to have a position. And I just trying to remind people, it's okay to just say, I don't know. I don't have an opinion. You know, I don't like to give opinions about things I don't know anything about. Richard Dawkins once said that he and I were doing a conference together or a, uh, in, in conversation together in Berlin. Two, this is two or three years ago when Jordan Peterson was at the height of his fame. And we got four questions about Jordan Peterson, even though we never even mentioned Jordan Peterson in our conversation. <laughs> And Richard finally said, you know, I, I just, I haven't read anything he's written. I haven't followed him. I, I just don't feel I should comment on something I don't know anything about. And he got a huge ovation for that. It's like, yes, finally, somebody said, it's okay to just keep your mouth shut. <laughs> right. And I think, cause, and, and, and so much of the incentives right now are, are getting clicks and getting views and, and, and the more sort of anger generating the 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 better the incentive is going to be right so what's so what is the game theoretic perspective of of what's the what's the plus of saying something versus not saying something and it's very hard to be able to say uh, you know what i don't know i don't have enough knowledge about this to actually offer an informed opinion on this yes yeah that's right well in terms of uh, the media landscape for uh, economic support financial support 
um, you know, all the networks, not just podcasters and bloggers, but, you know, the major networks have all had to go to this more extreme position, especially Fox, especially cable, Fox News and CNN being examples that have kind of pushed each other uh, further apart. Maybe MSNBC more than CNN would be an example, but um, you get more clicks if you, you know, like I'm from Fox News. If you, I swear these guys are required to say the left, like every five minutes, the left, the left, the left, you know, there's AOC, the left, there's crazy Antifa. That's the left. That's the liberal position such that if you are one millimeter to the left of dead center, you're basically a centrist Democrat. You are a socialist, communist, AOC, Antifa, violating Starbucks window breaking, crazy protester. You know, it's like, no. <laughs> but the more you go out there, the more clicks you get. You know, I mean, this is not new. I mean, uh, Rush Limbaugh figured this out in the eight, uh, 80s with his uh, radio show. Uh, the more outlandish he got, the more uh, viewers, listeners he, he got. Howard Stern, you know, on a more flippant level, you know, to just realize the more outrageous I am, the, the more people listen, even right. the people that hate him. People that hate him say, I listen to see what he's going to say next. They can't believe it. And, uh, you know, that's what drives, you know, Hannity and Carlson and Ingram and all those hosts. But, you know, to be fair, you know, CNN, they, they do the same thing in the other direction. I think they're, they're to me, they're all unwatchable. I, I still read physical newspapers. <laughs> right. And, and I think and I think that's part of the part of the challenge is that we don't know if something's true or not until we hear it. And, 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 and from what I understand that our, we're sort of predisposed to want to believe something, to look for patterns that we, we hear something and our natural inclination is to assume that it's true. Because I think for most of our, our human history, there was an, there was a, there was a value in having a, an accurate representation of the world, but it's hard if you hear something and we don't know the source or we don't know, we'll say, oh, I heard from a friend on Facebook that such and such said this. And and we can't really assimilate what's accurate and what's not accurate. Yeah. And again, that's, you know, old urban legends uh, theory of, of how these things get started. Friend of a friend is, is actually a meme that's used in, in, in uh, the study of urban legends. And, uh, and, and it's, again, in, in the normal way, we operate socially, you know, getting information from other people is the primary source of information in the history of our species. There, there was no television. There were no, there was no, before there was printed word for their newspapers, you know, that, that, that the oral tradition of passing on information from one person to another, that's what gossip is. People study gossip. It's mostly information about other people and the circumstances and how things are going and the risks and dangers and, and lying and cheating and negative things. You know, that's what gossip is about. It's information. Mm -hmm. So the, you know, I heard it from a friend or a friend of a friend told me, uh, again, that's kind of normal, how normal communication happens. So you see why people rely on it, even though really it's not trustworthy. But uh, but but you, you explained why earlier when you said, you know, we didn't evolve what's called veridical perception, that is perception to, to determine the truth. Uh, that does not appear to be what our senses are designed to do. It's just to survive and flourish and pass on our genes, and reproduce, and and that's it. It doesn't matter whether you know you get it exactly right. So uh, now I don't go so far as some people that go in sort of a solipsistic direction of saying, well, there is no reality. Then no, there's a reality. Now you know the 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 reality of what my brain sees when it sees, say, this microphone, is probably different than what the bat sees when it bounces sonar off of it and it registers in its 
neural networks up there. It probably has a different icon on its desktop than I do for this thing. Um, but still, it's there. <laughs> and the bat's going to avoid it, you know, when it pings and, and it's, it flies around so it doesn't hit it. Um, you know, so, so, so reality exists for sure. Getting at it is difficult, which is why the social nature of science and the idea of consensus in science is so important because I might be getting it wrong, but if you and I both look at this and describe it, we have a better chance that we're, we're getting at what's really there. And if maybe everybody up here and watching, they also study it and they report what they see, well, now we gain in confidence. It's not to say that groups can't be all diluted. They can, but that just decreases the chances that any of us have gone down some crazy pathway that's just totally off the rails. And so that's why we depend on, um, uh, again, I mentioned like climate science. Well, what do I know? Well, I, I do know that these people uh, are all experts and they compete with each other and they try to debunk each other before their papers are published. And then they peer review, they attack each other. By the time I read it in the newspaper or whatever, it's probably gone through a lot of checks and balances. They could still be wrong. Yes. But at least there's been some filtering there uh, of, of the crazy ideas through other people, through other minds that are trying to get at it. Although I think one of the challenges, and I'd love to explore this for, for a couple of minutes of, you know, talking about reality. So there's an element of the of, of physical reality that, that science aims to be able to do. Science helps us you know, understand what is nature telling us, right? Like your, your scientific experiments are either going to be accurate or not. Um, but there's also what we might call social reality, social facts. So elements of everything from how many votes did did Biden or Trump get, right? That that exists only because we as an American society set up these rules to be able to say, here's what's going to happen. Or there's also in, in religion, there's a, a religious reality of, you know, doesn't necessarily have to be a, a religious wedding, but for example, weddings are, you know, create a, a social reality of when somebody says, I do, that changes the reality of that mm. relationship here. Um, so, yeah. so, and yet we call all those different things reality, right? Like if it's, it's, it's a different, you know, we collapse of there's a reality that if I throw this ball out of my window, it's going to hit the ground. That's a scientific reality versus it's a reality that Joe Biden won the presidency, um, versus something along the lines of I, yeah, I love yeah. my spouse and I want to create a ritual moment of that. We collapse all of those things as reality, but they're, the, the methodology is a little bit different among all of them. Yeah. And also say democracy and money would be examples mm -hmm. of social truths. I mean, money, it's just cheap paper with some ink, uh, you know, printed on it. What's it really worth? Nothing. Well, it's worth a lot because you agree that it is. And I agree. And everybody here and, you know, by fiat, the government says it's, this is what it's worth you know, today, <laughs> whatever the Fed sets that, those rates at, and so on. And, and that's kind of a social reality that, you know, we it, it, it works because we agree that it works. And it wouldn't work if, you know, if the society broke down and the value of the dollar collapsed, uh, which is, you know, why it was always based on it, uh, on something more tangible like gold, the gold standard. But at some point, that doesn't work anymore for a huge, complex economy. Uh, democracy is the same way. You know, it's it's like we have a certain kind of trust in the system working, which is why it was a little scary there last month uh, that maybe this wasn't going to work out. Uh, we see this happening in other countries, but not, you know, not here. But, yeah, it could, could happen here because, again, it depends on enough people saying, I accept the results. And you saw this with the kind of the social truth 
uh, working when um, Republicans said, yes, in my district, in my state, uh, it, it was a fair election and Biden won. And then finally, when A.G. Barr said, you know, Attorney General Bill Barr said, not no sign, there's no evidence of election at all. It was like I had thought that would put an end to it because that's our for Republicans and conservatives. That's our man. He's Trump's man. Mm-hmm. He just is beholden to Trump. We know that Trump trusts this guy and he says no fraud. So I thought, well, that'll do it. Even that didn't work. And then when Mike Pence, I mean, if, if, if you know, if you look up loyalty in the dictionary, there's a picture of Mike Pence. I mean, this guy is, you know, he is as honest and straight and, you know, loyal as could be. And when he said, you know, no, nope, I'm not doing, I'm not going to fix this election for you. Sorry. You know, I thought, well, that'll do it. But still, OK, uh, so that, that shows the power of, I think, Trump to try to override those social truths that we all depend on. Uh, and, you know, marriage, yes, you know, it's all it's just a piece of paper. Well, not just a piece of paper. It's a lot more than that. It makes a difference. And we know from studies showing that people that shack, so-called shack up together, just live together without a, a marriage contract, they don't last as long because, you know, it's easier to bail when times get tough and times get tough. Right. So marriage is, is you know, I'm still not sure I, the, the government should be in that business, but that's a different subject. Well, and- <laughs> yeah. And then also, I think what's what's interesting is is the link, and and we talk about this a lot on on our conversations with with uh, with previous people as well of the link of of religion and politics because for some people as a their view of of religion tends to be deference to authority, and there are some people who are. Um, are, are, you know, they will question a little more. So, you know, I identify as a more liberal Jew. So a lot of reform Judaism is a lot of grappling and struggling and we're going to change and, and things can evolve. And there are some who will say, this is the end of the story, period. And, and when there's a cognitive dissonance that happens, sometimes that actually creates a split where you, be, where you either become um, a, a deeper fundamentalist and to be able to sort of fit all the data into your pre-existing schema or you completely reject what you were taught before and be, and, and go against what was being presented here. Yeah. Let's, I, I, I like this idea of making a distinction between religious truths and say empirical truths. Like did someone named Jesus really exist? You know, there's so, some atheists go, no, I don't even think there was such a person. Well, I disagree with them. I think there's evidence. And I know that uh, some of my atheists Biblical scholars like Bart Ehrman say, yeah, Jesus probably existed. Okay. Was Jesus crucified? Well, Romans crucified practically everybody. I mean, it was like a weekend hobby for them, you know, and even the two people that died on, on either side of Jesus, they were, you know, common criminals. And, they, you know, so the, so capital punishment by way of crucifixion was a pretty common practice. So, yeah, so Jesus probably existed. He was probably crucified. Now, the next question, did he rise from the dead after the crucifixion? The resurrection. Now that's a different um, that's a different matter entirely. Here, the first two tenets are ordinary claims. You know, the the name Yeshua was fairly common, and the Romans crucified lots of people. And there's you know, so we don't need extraordinary evidence for that. But you know, a hundred a hundred billion people have lived and died before the seven and a half billion people alive today. That's what dem- demographers estimate. Depending on how far back you go. But just make it 100 billion. Not one of them has come back from the dead. Not one, except maybe one. According to Christians, one did. So how extraordinary is this claim? 100 billion to one. That's how extraordinary it is. 
How extraordinary is the evidence to support that? It's not even ordinary. It's not very good at all. There's no extra biblical evidence for this and on and on and on. But here, here's my point. So, you know, I'm skeptical of the, of the resurrection. But the other point is that, um, you know, because the, theists, Christian theists have arguments for why they think the resurrection happened. And I've done these debates. But a point I make is, why don't Jews accept Jesus as the, uh, as the Messiah who was resurrected from the dead? And you can't just say all oh, these Jews, if they knew the arguments, they would be Christians. Like, no, they know the arguments. You can't tell me these rabbis are just uneducated. They just don't understand. No, they understand. They understand everything you're saying. They know the arguments, boom, 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 and they reject them. Why? And and and, and to me, that's kind of a social uh, truth issue, that it's not an empirical question. So I, I'd just be curious to know, because I don't think we've talked about this before. Yeah. Why don't you accept why don't you accept the resurrection? So that so that that's an excellent question. This is the first time someone's asked me in in this way. So so one one reason that I a phrase I'll give sort of the historical and then sort of my personal piece of this. Um, from from a historical piece of um, as somebody who is who is a Jew who's 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 a Jew and and a rabbi that that the role of the Messiah as defined in first century Judaism, Jesus did not meet those requirements. The Messiah, the the job of the Messiah. As at the time of Jesus was to be a political leader who was going to help overthrow the Roman government and usher in a world of peace and justice. And that didn't happen. So by definition, that's not what 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 the Messiah does. And later Christians then changed what the job of the Messiah was, at least in Judaism. Mm. The job of the Messiah is not to answer prayer. It's not to be salvation of the world. The Messiah had a very specific job. Um, now, from a from a personal uh, perspective, and, and someone said, you know, the, the Reza Aslan has said a lot about this as well. From my own personal perspective, if I grew up as somebody who was Christian, and, and from what I understand, there's actually some research that at least uh, a, a, an inclination and desire to be spiritual, there is some genetic basis of that, of, of, of being able to. So, but if I had been raised in a Christian household, I think it's very likely I would have come up with a reason as to why I would have accepted Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior. Um, but that's not how I grew up, and that's not how I'm raised. You know, I'm raised in my own cultural tradition with with my language and my belief system. And there's certainly a lot of rationalization that I would do, but this is that's the language that I speak in, and so that's. Both why I I don't currently I I'm not anticipating there you know there's not going to be any argument that's going to convince me to be able to accept Jesus as my personal savior. There's also not going to be anything scientific that's going to make me an atheist, um, right? There's because there's that my because I think the questions of is there a God is not it's not a scientific question. It's not an empirical mm. question that can be answered in any kind of way. Interesting. Yeah, that's what uh, the word agnostic originally meant uh, when Thomas Henry Huxley coined the word in 1869, not knowable. Right. Not that we're waiting for one more experiment or another data set or some good argument, and then I'll change my mind. You know, like climate change. Well, it could be, could be, I don't know, let me see, let's wait and see. No, not like that. There's no argument that or set of evidence is going to prove it. I agree with that. I think ontologically, we can't know for sure one way or the other. 
Um, so therefore, to me, the skept skeptical position is, is is the default position. But then, of course, that's what I would say. <laughs> and then uh, I think that's. But 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 thank you for saying that about the you know the 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 Messiah thing. That's interesting. Ben Shapiro made a similar comment to me when I asked him that same question. Um, that's not the job of the Messiah. Yeah, and that got changed. That does make sense in terms of uh, like that kind of religious truth. At some point, like Jesus died for your sins. That's even more. Uh, of a just a, a pure dogmatic statement you just accept it or you don't um and you know it, i know it depends on this idea of original sin or whatever but i remember being at a conference with uh on stage with richard dawkins and um, ken miller now everybody knows who dawkins is famous atheist but ken is not as well known but he's an evolutionary biologist especially uh, specializing in cell biology he has a, a ma major textbook and he was the first to debunk the intelligent design creationist argument um, from uh, irreducible complexity and, you know, the detection of design in complex systems like cells. Well, he debunked all their arguments, but he's a Catholic and he accepts Jesus as his savior and he believes that Jesus was resurrected. Anyway, so Dawkins says, okay, Ken, let's say we found a piece of the true cross. You know, there's stories about, you know, the piece of the true cross is floating around here and this church has it or whatever. Let's say we actually got one and on there was a little bit of flesh, you know, from Jesus' hand or whatever. And so we, did, we uh, you know, got out his DNA and, and, and ran it through one of these DNA scanners and so on. What would it look like? You know, because he was allegedly born of a virgin, right? So right. he's got to have a different set of DNA of some kind. You know, and Ken saw where this was going. He's like, Richard, Richard, I'm not claiming this is true like in a scientific sense, not an empirical truth. And, you know, we're going to get that Jesus flesh off the cross and we're going to prove that I got the right religion. Because this is, I was raised Catholic. This is what we believe. Full, full stop. End of story. And I, th I think a lot of the conversations about, about science and religion tend to, um, tend to be talking about truth, but using it in both different kinds of ways. And so people talk past each other. Um, yeah. Because I think a lot of, um, at least where where I come from is that a lot of the religious conversations are not designed to be scientifically empirical places. So, you know, one example that I tend to give of, you know, how do we understand the origin of the universe, right? If you were to ask me, what is the origin of the universe? I would say 13.8 billion years ago, there was yeah, some sort of, yeah. right? Like Genesis, Genesis is not, was not written to be right. a scientific textbook. It was designed to be able to, um, to be able to help at that time, understand what, where the, where the world came from. And that was the best understanding they had at that time. Now for me as a 21st century Jew, how do I grapple with this question? And, and, and I, and I have my own interpretations of how to be able to read that, but, but I'm not, I, I don't want to say it's okay. It's either Genesis or the big bang cosmology. No, if you're talking about where did the universe come from, science is the way to be able to understand those, those kinds of questions, which means that religion now needs to think about its questions in different kinds of ways. Yeah, that's right. So to what extent science and religion are in conflict depends on on how you treat them. Right. <laughs> uh, again, if you're treating religious claims as empirical, and some creationists do do that, you know, like young earth creationists like uh, Ken Ham, you know, it's it's less than 10,000 years old, period, full stop. I know it's true because it says so in the Bible. Oh, yeah, well, these geologists over here have evidence to show that's not the case. Well, they have to be wrong. Okay, this guy's off the page of having a, even a conversation with because he's not open to discussing it. But if you say, like you just said, well, it's it's not a science book. It, you know, it's just it's a, a book about, you know, moral homilies and it's, it's a story and, and it's trying to convey certain messages. 
and those are different kinds of truths. I mean, it would be like arguing, you know, did did Harry Potter really exist? Or let's say J.K. Rowling held this is my other analogy. Let's say J.K. Rowling holds a press conference and she says, you know what, I, I've I've kind of been deceiving you all. I, I said this was all fiction, but in fact, it all happened. <laughs> You know, people would go. You've lost your mind. You've you, you're gone. Right. <laughs> and uh, you know, and, and and of course, you know, the the moral of the stories of a Jane Austen novel or Shakespeare's plays or or uh, Dostoevsky's. You know, the brothers Karamazov. You know, I don't know if there was brothers named Karamazov in Russia. But that's not what the book is about. You know, it's not a, it's not supposed to be a history of the you know Russian modernity. Uh, at, in the 19th century, it's not. That's not what it is. You know, it's something else. But it does have truths. You know, there's now a study of kind of evolutionary psychology study of literature, uh, because there's certain themes that come up over and over and over again in all literature, all good literature, high so-called high literature. About, but it's mostly related to human nature. You know, love and relationships, and and violating relationships, and cheating, and lying, and power power dynamics and hierarchical social structures and status and you know gossip and these these things are are truths about the human condition that novelists can convey by just making stuff up but they're not just making stuff up i mean there there's a structure to it that's real about who we are and that's a different kind of truth i don't know what you want to call it, literary truth something like that maybe the bible is more like that and yes, and I, I think that's I think that's that's an element of there there are pieces of what we might call history. There are pieces of of literature. There's poems. There's you know there's and 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 it's you know it's stitched together from from different places. And and it's also I think in a lot of the way that I I think of of my own theology at least is that it it has value because we as as a people find value in it. If you know, if I think if, if Judaism were to be eradicated off of the face of the earth, and and Christianity were to be eradicated off of the face of the earth, I don't necessarily think the Bible would continue to be um, our source of of anything because there would be there would be no one who would be engaging with it. I think there's that that we find our our meaning and our value from the interactions that we have. It's a very bottom up kind of thinking rather than here's the truth and now let me fit fit this square peg into a round hole. I know what I wanted to ask you. You know, traditionally, you said you're a liberal uh, Jew, you know, and and Judaism traditionally has been pretty liberal, kind of on the forefront of civil rights activism and gay rights and women's rights and so on. Uh, And yet lately, I don't know, I'd say maybe the last decade, 20 years, it seems like at least the far left anyway, has has, there's there's kind of an ugly streak of anti-Semitism, certainly anti-Israel. But sometimes I feel like the anti-Israel is, you know, they're sneaking in some anti-Semitism in there. Mm-hmm. What, what is that true? First of all, is it true? And if so, what what's going on there? It's a that, it's a very it's a very complicated question. It's a very good question. Um, and I think that, so. I think there's there are a few different pieces. Um, I think that one of the challenges is that um, is that Judaism is not just a religion, but it's also a, a people. And so there's there's a piece that that comes um, of 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 somebody feeling like they're attacking my family, right? At that, and so that's. Mm. And I think the other thing that I've found to be very helpful is thinking about Jonathan Haidt's work. And I and I'm sure you know you probably know him very well personally, but um, but I I very much like his his um, work on on the righteous mind and. 
what tends to happen is liberals, and if, and for those of you who don't know Jonathan Haidt's work, I highly recommend his book, The Righteous Mind, that liberals, and this is both political and, and religious liberals, tend to focus predominantly on, on questions of, of care and on, uh, and on justice. And that cuts across. And liberals tend not to be as connected to the, the, um, the loyalty piece of that. Um, but when, when it comes to questions of Israel and the Jewish community, the loyalty part of that gets activated, but it's not mm. always conscious. And so mm. a lot of liberal Jews feel uncomfortable because they have both of the elements of, of a, a fight for civil rights and a fight for, um, for justice and, and caring for the oppressed in, in a variety of different ways. Um, and, and yet, when the loyalty piece of that comes in, it becomes uncomfortable because it's perceived as more of a right-wing um, perspective, more conservatives buy into the loyalty piece. And so they'll say, well, wait a second. I, I identify as somebody who's on the left. This is something that's coming in from the right. I'm not quite sure how to integrate that into my own yeah. uh, schema yeah. here. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, and I think that's, I think there's, there are some there are some very good organizations I would call like uh, like Trua um, has some excellent work um, on on different uh, pieces where there where there is um, grappling with how do I live out what I would call liberal values and being able to fight against anti-Semitism as it as it comes in and and it's it's become kind of a third rail for a lot of people and I think I think it's it's in many ways it's also um, part of the challenges of, of what happens in religion, like we were talking about a few minutes ago, which is that if you, if you have a, I am going to defer to the boss in this and, and there's some cognitive dissonance, if you don't have a firm thought of how am I going to integrate this new data in, it may collapse. And so being able to, to integrate different perspectives here. But I also, if there are other people in the chat who have other comments or thoughts on this um, as well. So well, you know, QAnon in my cover or latest issue of Skeptic, it has a kind of anti-Semitic element to it indirectly through the blood libel. Mm-hmm. You know that Hillary and these uh, you know pedophilic, satanic Democrats are are drinking the blood of children, mm-hmm. you know, ostensibly to 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 live forever, extend their lives or whatever. You know, but it is there, there's an element of the, the the old, very old now blood libel. Um, against Jews, and you know, there's some other elements out of. Also, they kind of go back to the uh, the protocols, the learned elders of Zion, that hoax, which you know still pops up indirectly again in QAnon and other uh, right wing um, conspiracy theories. Um, you know, the Jews will not replace us. Business also on the right. right. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, what are they talking about? The Jews will not replace us. I mean, how many Jews are there? I mean, what are you, what are you worried about? I mean, come on. Well, that's not what they're worried about. They're not worried about how many babies Jews are having. You know, it's this replaces politically and power and so on and economically or whatever. So, yeah, both sides have uh, strains of anti-Semitism. Very yeah. disturbing. And well, and, and that, I mean, that leads to, to another question that I wanted to ask you, because based on your on your new book, which are questions about free speech, because that's mm. become really complicated of who has a right to be able to speak? What are the consequences of that speech? Who gets to decide um, in those kinds of pieces on, on both the left and the right? There are there are aspects of that of, of you know, somebody says something. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, I even put the devil. I put the devil, even though I'm an atheist, on my book cover. <laughs> well, the the art department did. Uh, yeah. Well, so the the devil and the giving the devil is due is whoever disagrees with you and what he's due is his voice. And the reason you want to do that is uh, because you may be wrong. Uh, you may be partially wrong. You might be completely wrong. But even if you're completely right, you know, knowing the other person's position strengthens your. Arguments. You know, this is John Stuart Mill's classic, he who knows only his own position doesn't even know that. My favorite example of this is my students at Chapman, who mostly young, liberal, pro-choicers on the abortion issue. So if I ask them, well, what are the best arguments on the pro-life side? They, they don't even know what they are. Oh, you know, they they hate women. No, that's not an argument. First of all, it's not an argument. Second of all, you don't know what people is in people's hearts. And, uh, you know, so so then I have them watch like a Ben Shapiro video on, on arguing for the pro-life position or a Dinesh D'Souza video because these are prominent public intellectuals. And it's like, oh, okay, so they actually do have arguments. Yeah, they have pretty good arguments. They do. Yeah. Now, let's say at the end of this, you've gone through all their arguments and you're still pro-choice. How much stronger is your pro-choice position knowing what the other side argues, and you still were able to hold your position even better. You know, So this is the, the core argument that you got to know what other people are saying, if for nothing else, to strengthen your own position. And uh, and this is true you know, on, on all issues that, that, that are not obviously true or false, immigration or tax rates or, or, or whatever, any kind of complex issue like that. And the ultimate reason is that none of us are smart enough to get it right by ourselves. We need other people uh, to guide us, to make sure we haven't gone off the rails. And that's what peer review is about in science. That's what science, scientific consensus is about. Like this, this idea has been run through the mill, through thousands of scientists, journals, debunkers, uh, skeptics, the peer reviewer, blind peer reviewers are trying to debunk you. And still it survives. That doesn't make it true with a capital T, but it's like more likely, less likely to be false. Let's put it that way. Well, and you know, one of my my friends who's a rabbi in North Carolina, actually a couple of my my friends, one of whom was actually a guest on on this show a couple of weeks ago, Rabbi Rachel Jackson uh, and and uh, and Rabbi Justin Goldstein, who are a couple of friends of mine who are in North Carolina, had a meeting with Madison Cawthorn um, a couple of a couple of days ago, and there's a very interesting article in uh, the Jewish Telegraphic Agency about the conversation that they had, and and the trying to be able to say, wait a second. He first of all, he has influence and he has power. Um, and and second of all, that this idea of of simply demonizing somebody that we disagree with ultimately ends up being ineffective, right? It feels nice to be have the righteous anger that there's a nice little shot of dopamine. But if your job is and your goal is to be able to say, I want to be able to affect change, you need to be able to understand who am I working with, what's their motivation, what are they thinking about? And it was a it's a fascinating. Uh, fascinating conversation because I think a lot of a lot of people want to be able to say people like like uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene or 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 um, or, uh, uh, or Cawthorn or or the other people that we can think of on the on the left if you're a little bit farther on the right where we will caricaturize their those people as opposed to saying these are individuals who have their incentives and their ideas and and what yeah. do they think and why and at least being able to understand that is is a, a prerequisite for moving forward. Yeah. 
Totally. Yeah. What worries me about extremists like Marjorie, Marjorie Taylor Greene on the one side, or maybe AOC on the other side is, you know, we, we need to, we have a duopoly in, in American politics. We have two strong parties and we're never going to have more because of the way the uh, system is structured and the way the money flows, we're never going to have more than two. So we need two strong that are pretty close to each other, you know, maybe within the two 40 yard lines, if I can use a football analogy, you know, but the moment you start going to the, you know, between the two 30 yard lines between the two 20 yard lines, they're really far apart. And, and the fact is most Republicans and Democrats are within, they're pretty close to the center, just a little left, a little right. Biden's pretty, pretty centrist Democrat. Uh, but the right paints him as, as if, He's AOC. They, they they make AOC seem like that's the Democratic Party, or Antifa. That you know, the, every you know every week, Sean Hannity and Carlson they have the you know segments of what Antifa is doing this week, and and then they immediately say this is the left, this is liberalism, this is Joe Biden's America. Like this is not accurate. This is unaccurate, inaccurate, or the left, you know, portraying the Proud Boys as representing all Republicans. You know, mm-hmm. it's just not true, right? But you know, it, so the, but the negative effect is it's very polarizing, right? It drives people apart, and um, and that you know, even even Obama said at the end of his of his second term, you know, if I watched Fox News, I wouldn't vote for me either. I mean, it's just <laughs> right. It's terrible. You know, it's so polarizing. Um, the other thing about censorship, though, that backfires for those who want to censor speech is it calls attention to the people you're trying to censor. You know, the band in Boston effect, uh, sometimes called the, you know, Barbara Streisand effect when, uh, you know, Barbara tried to get her uh, home in Malibu uh, sort of blocked off the maps because people were taking boats out and taking pictures of her, her house. Anyway, she made a big stink about it. And then next thing you know, everybody and their brothers out there taking pictures of her house, right? So just keep your mouth shut, right? You know, if you want to, if you really want to silence somebody like a Milo Yiannopoulos, who's in it, kind of an agitator on college campus, he was, um, you know, just, just, just ignore him, right? But, but the left just could not do that. These leftist students, like, we got to get out there and protest this guy and have their signs and the, all week building up to this. You know, there's all this stuff in the campus newspaper, signs around the campus. And this is like the biggest thing that's going to happen all year. Milo loves that. This is exactly what he was hoping for, right? So they kind of feed into that. Whereas I can tell you as a public speaker myself, the, the w- way worse than that is an empty auditorium. I mean, you walk in there and there's nobody there. It's like, oh, this is depressing, right? So that if you really want to say, same thing with David Irving. So since we have a mutual interest in in handling the Holocaust deniers, you know, the the, the worst thing that could have happened for, for, from our perspective is paying, calling attention to David Irving's, you know, kind of his anti-Semitism or his Holocaust denial, because it made him kind of a cause celeb on, on in certain camps. And it put him on the map. There he is, like stories about him in Time Magazine, New York Times covering him, you know, way more attention than he ever would have gotten as just, a you know, a, an independent historian. And, uh, and then when he was arrested in... Um, uh, let's see, Vienna, when he flew to Austria to give a talk at one of these far-right groups about World War II, about Hitler and World War II, and then maybe a little on the Holocaust, right? So I have a whole chapter in here on David Irving, because I defended Irving. I wrote a letter to the judge saying, this is not right. You should just let him go. Just send him home and ignore him. 
you know, but of course on his, in his camp, oh, this is the biggest thing, you know, the traditional enemy is after me again, you know, send your donations. And, uh, you know, this calls attention to who's the traditional enemies, the Jews, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, but if you just ignored him, this would be the worst thing for him, you know, because then no one would even know who he is, but he just, you know, a lot of these people, they just eat that up. You know, they're kind of professional contrarians. And by trying to censor them because you don't like what they're saying, you're just feeding into their whole cause. Yeah. So that was, it was a question of, of, to, of, to what extent, I mean, I think, and, and, um, and I am assuming this is also, um, you know, raising a question. This is a, and this is, I think a bigger challenge in, in a lot of our society right now, which is there's, there are, there are some significant problems that we're facing in a variety of different ways. And, and, and a lot of, um, and, and you talk about this, um, I think in, in the moral arc also of, uh, trying to, that, that America and, and democracy is kind of a scientific experiment, right? We, we try something, it, it, mm-hmm. we mess it up, we try to do a little bit better, which is how science is, is supposed to work as well. So, so w- when is it appropriate or accurate to try to, to battle an idea that, that, that seems to be um, destructive or actually could be destructive versus um, just letting that play itself out? Because sometimes if, there, if, there's, if there's no... Uh, pushback that th- that's going to dominate the conversation. That's going to be right. If I don't fight back yeah. against this perspective, yeah. that's going to be what everybody yes, tends to think. Yes, yes, yes. Well, right. So what we do at Skeptic is we actually, when if we take on a subject, we actually, uh, you know, just line up their claims. Here's what they're claiming. You know, here's quotes from them and so on. Here's the explanation for it. Boom, 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 boom. We've done that for a bunch of things. The Holocaust deniers, the creationists. Uh, even the flat earthers, you know, I mean, we ignored them because they were just, they were just non-existent until a couple of years ago. And all of a sudden everybody's talking about the flat earth and documentaries about the flat earth and books about the flat earth and stories like, okay. So, you know, we did two stories. One, um, you know, here's who they are and why they are probably making these arguments, kind of an anthropological study of flat earthers and what they're all about. Then the other one was, well, what are their claims? How do we know the earth is not flat? And, you know, and then it's a boom, boom, boom. Here's the 10 things that they argue. And here's what astronomers respond to that, you know? So, and a story, you know, it's like, okay, fine. That's it. Uh, we've had our say and the information is out there, free access. People can read it if they want to know. Um, you know, that's, a, to me, that's the proper way to respond to those sorts of things. You know, not silence them. You know, they, they can have their say. You know, the Holocaust deniers can have their little newsletter and hold their hotel meetings and have their 12 people there, whatever. They're not big and important unless you make a big deal about it and try to get them canceled, mm-hmm. in which case it's probably going to backfire. In any case, you know, I, I learned a lot about the Holocaust by reading what the Holocaust so-called revisionists were saying. Uh, it's like, yeah, I don't know what the explanation for that little thing right there is. And, uh, and in a way, it's a lesson on uh, engaging with people like that before the Holocaust and I was involved with the creationists. And I, I noticed a lot of evolutionary biologists would debate these creationists, and they didn't do well because they thought the debate was about evolutionary biology. It's not about that. Not about evolution at all. It's about something completely different. They have a whole set of arguments and the way that they debate. And if you're not prepared for that, and same thing with the Holocaust deniers, you know, because these I would see these Holocaust historians. Well, you know, we have the you know, look at these photographs or look at this camp and and the Zyklon B and the this and that. It's like they don't care about. They have answers for all that. Mm-hmm. If you don't know what their arguments are, you're not going to do well, right? So I studied. Okay, what is it they're arguing? It's one thing to know a lot about the Holocaust. That's not enough. You got to know what it is they're arguing about the Holocaust. They're doing something completely different, right? So that's why I think we need 
skeptics. You know, this is what we do is, you know, deal with these kind of fringe elements that have a different line of reasoning than philosophers and scientists and academics do. And, and, and I think, and I think some of the, the, challenge is that for for a lot of things ranging from the the you know the atrocious of of holocaust deniers and um to to the more mundane which is that i think for a lot of people facts don't always change people's mind in fact facts often are 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 will sometimes even backfire there right the more facts that you give to somebody the more entrenched they become sometimes. in their sometimes. um Not in their always. mentality yeah. There's new research on that. The, the backfire effect may not be what we thought it was. Okay. Uh, it depends on how you present the information. Yeah, just new research on this. Um, Hugo Mercier talks about this in his book, Not Born Yesterday, that people are not that dumb. They're not that ideological. You can bring them around. It depends on how the facts are presented. Visually is especially good for things like climate change. You know, photographs, graphs, charts that go up and down in bars that you can compare. Pie charts are good. If you just have a table of numbers... You just look at it and go, I don't even know what I'm looking at. Oh, you can clearly see here. No, I can't clearly see anything. So a pie chart or, you know, bars that go up and down or or a, like a, a correlational curve that goes up and so on. Um, and also taking the ideology out of it, like we, we mentioned before, you know, if you, uh, uh, the analogy I like to make, if you give people a choice between Darwin and Jesus they're, and they're Christian, they're not they're not picking Darwin. Right. You, that, that can't be the choice, right? You, you have to... You know, when when conservatives uh, hear global warming, their brain just autocorrects to anti-capitalism, anti-free market, socialism, communism, you know, anti-America. And it's like, what? No, this is a science. What are you talking? Take that off the table. We're not talking about politics. You know, so you have to present the facts in a way that are more easily to digest. And and probably also, and this is something that we've explored in a few of the previous episodes, which is the the importance of starting with a with a conversation that's going to lower the temperature rather than raising it so you know like i mm-hmm. i find that that when i'm dealing with questions of science and religion and it be maybe in a heated place is i'll start by asking a question of tell me about a moment when you felt awe and majesty right and that's cuz that's a conversation that anyone that, that doesn't mm-hmm come into the is a big bang versus genesis right that mm. comes in and and you know the triple as does this as well of you know starting with a question of a personal story or pieces of also of community organizing of you know what what keeps you up at night and what gets you going in the morning mm. and you know that then then okay now like let's actually now we can drill down on some of these questions that we're grappling with because there there actually may be some common ground to be able to work on these kinds of of issues rather than just yelling back and forth and past each other here. Yeah, that's right. Yep. Yep. Bring the temperature down. Always a good idea. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes hard to do, even in yourself, you have to kind of, kind of maybe take a break when you're in the middle of a heated debate, you know, let's just stop for five minutes and come back. Yeah. And and that, that does lower the temperature. And, and again, you know, the, the, the media landscape though, the financial incentives for, you know, heating things up, are there. There's a logic to it. That mm-hmm. also has to change. I don't know how, but. <laughs> and right. And, and I think, and, and being able to have not just this line, not just um, broadcasting, but all the narrow casting that we're now having and, and mm-hmm. being able to share. And I think, you know, as you talk about too, that the question of belief, that's a, that's a, that's a loaded, that's a loaded word. And I think particularly with, with, yeah. with science. And I think, um, 
I always like to see, and, and I, I think Catherine Hayhoe, who's an evangelical Christian, has talked about this. She says, no, 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 I don't believe in climate change. I, I accept climate change. Like climate change is a, right. right? This is not a question of do you believe it or not? It's not, you know, do I right. believe Jesus was the Messiah or not? That's, no, it's like what's actually accurate that I can accept or not here. That's right. I, you know, I, I, I wouldn't say I believe in evolution, but I would say like, I believe in a flat tax and maybe you say, well, I believe in a, a progressive tax. Well, there's, there's not a right answer to that question. It's like, well, I'm going to vote for my guy that wants the flat tax. You vote for your guy that wants the progressive tax and we'll see who wins. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that those are different kind of beliefs uh, for sure. Thanks for listening to this episode of Sacred Science. And we hope you enjoyed our conversation with Michael Shermer. You can find him on Twitter at Michael Shermer. Our guest on our next episode will be Dr. Ethan Siegel, an astrophysicist who has written for Forbes and Big Think. I've been your host, Rabbi Jeff Middleman. Sacred Science is a production of Sinai and Synapses and is part of the Judaism Unbound Network. Sacred Science is produced by Jeff Middleman and edited by Rachel Pincus and Zach Jackson. And to find all of our previous episodes and guests, you can find us at sinaiandsynapses.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, if you're interested in more conversations about religion and science, including articles, blog posts, and upcoming events, you can visit Sinai and Synapses' website or follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Sinai and Synapses, on Twitter at Sinai Synapses, or me at Rabbi Middleman. You can also find out more about Judaism Unbound and its offerings at JudaismUnbound.org. Thanks for joining us. We hope to see you again soon. And Kol Tuv, all good things.